Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. Hey everyone, I want to share this email with you. It's from Ruth Morrow and she writes, Hello Rip, I wanted to say thank you for producing your line of Plant Strong products. My husband and I have been dabbling with eating plant-based for a few years, but now Due to a health scare and a cardiac intervention for my husband, we are all in. I love filling my pantry with your chilies and stews and batch cooking with all of your new broths. I look at the products as an investment in our health and I appreciate all you've created. Breakfast is always Rip's Big Bowl and we have your pizza every Friday night. We know that your products are actually helping us to heal our bodies, and we love that they actually taste great too. I tell all of our friends to jump on the Plant Strong wagon before they need to. We have read the research and we listen to your podcast every week and are convinced this is our best chance to stop the progression of heart disease and to help us be healthy role models for our children and grandchildren. Keep up the good work, Ruth Morrow. Well, Ruth, you have not only made my day, you have made the day of everyone on the Plan Strong team. It gives us so much pride to know that you are leaning on us as you look to turn around your health. These are the exact reasons we get out of bed each day and work to create all of these health-promoting products for people like you who want convenience and progress. Please keep us posted on your husband's health and let us know how he's doing. All of our products are available to ship straight to your doorstep. So if you or a loved one is recovering from a hospital stay, there's really no better gift than our ready-to-eat chilies and stews that you can just throw into a bowl, heat in the microwave for a minute and a half, and there you go. You got your meal. Nourishing meals that provide all the benefits of plant strong living. What could be better? Check out our full assortment at plantstrongfoods.com. You know, you convince you have to add a lot of protein, a lot of dairy. You're convincing people to eat animal foods, saturated fats, uh, cholesterol, lack of fiber, vitamin mineral misbalances, and highly environmentally contaminated food. You know, full of carcinogens and. You know, you're convinced it's not just the fact that it's a deficiency problem. It's the most toxic thing that you can eat. That's why I call it food poisoning. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health 
enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my Plan Strong potatoes, and I'm calling you potatoes today because it is so apropos considering the guest that I have on the podcast. Earlier this year, I was able to have the esteemed Dr. Dean Ornish on the podcast. And most recently, I welcomed my father, Dr. Caldwell B. Estelston Jr., to answer your questions as part of a special Father's Day podcast. If you missed either of these shows, I highly recommend listening and watching the wisdom of these two pioneers. And I'll be sure to put a link into the show notes for these episodes so that you can go back and take a look. Today, however, I'm going to continue the Pioneer World Tour with none other than one of the most iconic and legendary people in this space, Dr. John McGod McDougall. <laughs> he has been an absolute hero and mentor of mine for decades, and it was an absolute thrill for me to talk about John's past, present, and his future legacy. His story is as fascinating as the plant-based movement that he launched back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. John was drawn to medicine because of his own health fate. Incredibly, at the tender age of just 18, he suffered a massive stroke and was a total anomaly to the physicians in Michigan who wanted to explore why and how. How in the world could this happen to someone so young? And this is what inspired his own medical journey, which eventually led John and his wife, Mary, to the big island of Hawaii as a doctor on a sugar plantation. And it's what he witnessed on this sugar plantation that changed the course of his medical practice forever. Now, the healthiest people on the island were the first-generation elders who had come from China, Japan, Korea, and the Philippines. They were the healthiest and most vibrant people. They were still active. They were on zero medications. And they had bodies that were fit for movement. However, it was their children and their grandchildren, those second and third generations that were struggling. And you may ask, why? And the answer is because they had adopted a Western diet loaded with meat, dairy, and processed foods. And the secret, the secret that Dr. McDougall discovered was starch. It's considered a bad word here in, uh, in America for all the wrong reasons. But those healthy islanders subsisted on a diet comprised mostly of rice, potatoes, vegetables, and fruits. And this is what inspired the work that Dr. McDougall does through all of his programming and education today. Now, animal agriculture, as we are so abundantly learning, 
is also one of the main culprits contributing to climate change. We've had lots of people on the podcast talking about this. And John and I discussed this today under the umbrella of his four deadly dietary deceptions as outlined at mcdougallfoundation.org. This is a super inspiring conversation from one of the absolute (laughs) giants and gods in the field. It was an honor for me to sit down with Dr. John McDougall, and I know you're going to enjoy this. John, this is an absolute pleasure. You know, you have been one of my heroes since I got into this space, uh, really in, you know, started eating this way in, in 1987. Personally, I know that you were a huge, huge influence on my father and, and him getting into plant-based. He read, I think it was McDougal, the McDougal program in 1983. I think you have probably been practicing this lifestyle holistic medicine longer than any other person on the planet, truly. Yeah, I think so. Except for, you know, any, anybody alive. <laughs> yes, yes. But, you know, you are, you're an absolute giant, giant, a legend, the patriarch of the movement. And I want you to know how, how much we owe you a debt of gratitude for just your, like, insane, ravenous personality that takes no prisoners, that has fought the good fight, and I, this is just, this is one of my dreams to have you on the show. So thank you. Well, I hope you recorded that. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you, Rip. It's, but, you know, I, I look at your dad and, and uh, T. Colin Campbell and, you know, even Dean Ornish and all the other people. I mean, it's been, it's been, a, it's been a war that needed a lot of soldiers, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yourself, and you know, it's it's just, and and the sad thing is, is uh, is we haven't won as much territory as we should have, you know. But it's, it seems that way in the world is that it doesn't matter if you're if you're good or evil, or you tell the truth or you're dishonest somehow or another. The bad guys win too often. Well, I know that you, you know, you've got a couple people that you really admire that influenced you, and for example, one of them was Nathan Pritikin. Absolutely, yeah. And yep, and you've written a lot about Nathan. You've got some incredible interviews uh, with Nathan. Um, you have a great YouTube interview that you did with him, you know, forty years ago. Yeah, I was just a kid. Yeah, you were you you were you were absolutely a little kid. But you know, you I I've read a lot of your newsletters that are remarkable. You know, going back to probably nineteen was it when did you start those nineteen ninety. Well, 1986, I think I wrote my first paper newsletter and then we went online in 2002. Wow. But, you know, you, you say that, uh, and unfortunately, you know, Nathan died at the, the tender age of 69, but you said if he would have lived longer, it would have made it much harder for, you know, paleo, keto, and some of these other ones to, to, take, to take a foothold. Yeah, he was really a really strong man. And, uh, very focused and nobody got in his way. He, you know, he took on Robert Atkins and, you know, in my opinion, to beat him terribly. And, uh, yeah, it was a sad thing for the world to take him at age 69. It wasn't fair. <clears throat> and, you know, one, one of the things I look at now, uh, Rip, is that I've, I've outlived 
not only Nathan Pritikin, but Robert Atkins. Mm-hmm. So I'm 75 years old now, and you know, hopefully, I get a few more years to fight the battle. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Yeah, well, and you're 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 75, but you like to say that, you know, uh, growing up, you pretty much abused yourself, and 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 it and at the uh, you know at the tender age of 18, in October of 1965, you had an event that really informed the direction of your medical career. And can you cha- can you share with the Plant Strong audience what happened because I don't think a lot of a lot of my listeners know your personal story and I want them to hear that. Well, I, I was raised in like so many people in a family that believe the most important nutrients were calcium and protein. And so my parents made sure I had lots of meat and lots of dairy and I enthusiastically do everything even to this day. And so uh, I suffered health problems, stomach pains, constipation, a little kid, lost my tonsils at age seven, was the, at the last of the pack out in gym class. I had no endurance and uh, had the typical oily skin and acne. And then at 18 years old, I had a massive stroke. And here, what, 56 years later, I, uh, you know, I still walk with a limp. And when I go windsurfing, I have a terrible poor jibe. <laughs> They're good to know. <laughs> you know, it's it's been a, it's been it was a major change for me. I actually I look at it as one of those things. I know I would have never been the doctor who had the opportunity to be with you today if it wasn't for that event where I was hospitalized at Grace Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, for two weeks after I had this stroke. Because there I met doctors, and uh, <clears throat> I, I was raised in a family where doctors were next to God, and I certainly was not that quality of a person. So I never had an aspiration to be a doctor, even though I love the sciences. But once I met doctors, I figured, heck, I can do what they do. So I, I left with a whole new attitude about the medical profession. That it was, you know, it's just people that were uh, that were uh, involved in this business. It wasn't anything anything particularly special. It was just people who happened to get an education. And so I took advantage of that at age. Uh, let's see, I was about 22 years old. My mother called me fat. I think I reached my height and my weight at 90 pounds more than I weigh now. And at 24, I had uh, major abdominal surgery. And uh, I I don't think I'd have made it past my late 20s or early 30s. I'd have had heart surgery or been dead. But a very unfortunate, fortunate thing happened to me. I met my wife, Mary, back in 1971. And in 1972, we went to Hawaii. And the next year, after a year of surgical internship in Hawaii, I took on a job as a sugar plantation doctor. You know, people don't even know what a sugar plantation doctor is these days, but I took care of 5,000 people on a sugar plantation on the Big Island of Hawaii. And these people were very interesting in the sense that I was their doctor. I mean, I I did everything for them. I pronounced them dead. I, I caught their babies. I did brain surgery in the middle of the night. You know, I was basically it. And uh, the thing is, is that in my general practice with these people, I felt like I was a terrible doctor because all I was doing was pushing pills. and They never, never got better from chronic disease. And I, I came from a time when you knew what real doctors did. I watched Ben Casey, Dr. Kilder, and Marcus Welby. And I wasn't performing at all like that. I, I thought I was a terrible, terrible doctor. I had a, a, another enlightenment there on my plantation, and that I was, I was taking care of first, second, third, and fourth generation people. First generation being born in their native land, 
in this case, uh, we're talking about Koreans and Chinese and Japanese and Filipinos primarily. <clears throat> and the first generation, they learned a diet of rice and vegetables. And then they moved to the Big Island to start a new life and they had their families and their families were influenced by Western eating. So the second generation, they ate more rich food and they got more overweight and sicker. And by the time you got to my third generation of patients, and I was taking care of all you know, four generations of people in my practice, I could see it right before my eyes. You know, the genes didn't change. The environment on the plantation hadn't changed for a hundred years. But here I saw this drastic change in health where my first generation, they never were overweight. They were hardworking into their 80s and sometimes 90s. They were actually father, men were fathering children in their 70s and 80s. And boy, was that an inspiration, I'll tell you. <laughs> here I am in my 70s. I, I wanted to have them be just as good as they were. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, they had never had diabetes, never had heart trouble, breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, no autoimmune diseases. This is my first generation. But as I mentioned, as the second generation, third generation learned the Western diet, they became progressively more ill because they were being poisoned. It, this is food poisoning, Rip. The, the, I have to explain it in those terms, and I do these days, so that people can understand it. Uh, this is food poisoning. And I try and make it simple for people, just like you know, I could tell your audience uh, about tobacco poisoning. And they would understand what that is. They'd understand how to solve it. You just you know, quit the tobacco or I could talk about alcohol poisoning. And they would understand what to do. You must stop the alcohol. But when it comes to food poisoning, people get really confused because we're taught all kinds of incorrect and ineffective things like skinning your chicken and skim milk and you know, just all kinds of mamby-pamby stuff that doesn't work. So what I've been trying to teach is that you suffer from food poisoning, and we can put that into two categories of poisons. You know, just like smoking and alcohol have one category. The two categories of poisons are animal foods. Okay, anything from an animal, whether you strip off its parts or you take the secretions from an animal. So any animal food is one category of food poison. And the other category of food is vegetable oil. So, you know, there are oils that we need that are in plants. As long as they're in plants, they're just fine. But when you strip it out of the corn or the olive, you know, what happens is you end up with an isolated concentrated nutrients that's it's poisonous. It's, it's at best medicinal. At worst, it's a serious toxin. So knowing that you just have two food poisons to deal with, two categories of food poison, people can put their arms around it. They, they know what to do, except... Then they say to themselves, there's nothing to eat. <laughs> you know, they go, oh, you're just uh, animal foods and oils. That's all I eat. Well, then I have to teach them the other side of the coin. And that is, uh, what is the diet of the human being? And the diet of the human being is starch. And I know that it's hard for people to grasp. But, you know, a lot of your listeners are people of uh, history and people of geography. And if you'll just relate to some of the things that you know, you know that the human being has been a starch eater for its entire existence with few exceptions. Like for example, you know, we're very focused on Native Americans and uh, we can find uh, evidence of Native Americans eating potatoes 10, 12,000 years ago in uh, what we call the four corners, which are four states that come together. 
their archaeologic findings, or if you <clears throat> think of the Native Americans, or you go down into Central America, you think of people of the corn. The Aztecs and Mayans were known as the people of the corn. You know, they had babies, they went to work, they fought battles, they competed in athletic events that you know, are comparable to the Olympics. Uh, they did that for 1,300 years living on corn. If you go further south and you look at uh, the people who lived in the Andes in South America, like, for example, the Incas. The Incas lived on potatoes until they went to battle, and because potatoes are so heavy, they fought on quinoa. And, you know, there are a couple other examples I, I want to mention. Uh, you know, we're, we're focused on Ukraine these days, and we've been focused a lot on Egypt and Iraq and Iran. This part of the world has been and still is known as the breadbasket of the world. Okay, so bread should come to mind. I know it's vilified, but, you know, people have lived on bread. It's the staff of life. And then when I mentioned the Asian population, uh, I mentioned Chinese or Japanese or Koreans or Thais or, you know, what, what do people think about? You know, immediately rice comes to mind. Before 1980, 90% of the food on a typical Asian's plate was rice. I know it was white rice, but you know, it ain't that big a deal. <laughs> I mean, good grief. On white rice, we almost lost to the Japanese World War II. And we lost the Vietnamese conflict on white rice. You know, so we've vilified, we put, we, we put our villains in the wrong place. Not that brown rice isn't better, it certainly is. But you've, you've got to fight your battles where you have a good chance of winning. And so what people need to do is they need to think of themselves as starch eaters. And how much starch? Well, when you look at your plate, and that's what you ought to be doing, is just eyeballing your plate. You don't have to measure. You don't have to take a dietitian along, look it up in a dietetic handbook. You just look and you go, oh, that's 90% of my food is starch. You know, maybe 75%. And then the rest is... Uh, is green and yellow vegetables, which are non-starchy, non-starchy plant foods, and fruits. <clears throat> now, I know there's a, a big swing out there, uh, and I know many of your guests that you've had on have been into nutritarian diets that have focused green and yellow vegetables, but no, no population ever lived on green and yellow vegetables. They lived on starch. It's just, uh, if you try, like for example, if I was gonna live on cabbage, or broccoli or kale. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you, you, you'd eat all day. It would, it would take me, uh, I'd have to eat like 11 to 22 pounds of cabbage a day to get my calories. And I that kind of time. So, so these non-starchy green and yellow vegetables are important. They're interesting, colorful, etc. But unless you base your diet around starch, you just don't have the performance that you need. You, you don't satisfy the appetite like you need. And again, I, I offer you as evidence, and then I'll stop talking here in a second. I offer you as evidence, I offer you as evidence the fact that 99.99% of people ever walk this earth have been starch eaters, starchitarians, starchivores. That's been their food. And they've had a little meat. You know, somebody challenged me a couple of days ago and said, well, they weren't vegans. You're right, they weren't vegans. You don't have to be a vegan if you don't want to be. We just teach a vegan diet. You know, the important thing is that the bulk of your calories come from starch. I mean, like 90%. And the rest shouldn't come from chickens and cows either. <laughs> Should come from, uh, from fruits and vegetables.
let me go back to the big island of Hawaii and the sugar plantation and the 5,000, your 5,000 patients. Um, were you, how soon were you able to connect the dots that, hey, it's the food, it's the food, it's the food? I mean, was it a year? Was it four years? I mean, I, I don't know how long you were there. It took, on the me, three, it took me three years. I, I was, uh, at the end of three years, I decided that I was a terrible doctor. And I really did. I, I blamed myself for the fact that my patients couldn't, weren't getting well. And I decided to go back in training and learn how to be a good doctor. So I, I, I left my plantation job and I moved back to Oahu and went to John Burns School of Medicine and became a board certified internist. Well, by that time, I'd kind of noticed the difference between my generations of patients. I, you know, and, and I'll tell you, my personal diet by then had only changed to where we were eating range-fed beef and we were eating uh, brown rice. But, uh, you know, I really hadn't made the, the real transition until about 1977, which is when I can say that I became essentially a vegan. And... Uh, <clears throat> Then I went back. Uh, I went back into this university setting to uh, to become a board certified internist, and had the Hawaii Medical Library on the grounds of the Queens Medical Center. And well, I tell you, I discovered in the library that I I I was not the original inventor of this information. There were tens of thousands of researchers that had studied the fact that and found the fact that rich foods make people sick. And the most important thing was when you change them back to the diet that people eat. In other words, you got rid of the meat, you got rid of the dairy and the oil, and you put them on, on rice and corn and potatoes and sweet potatoes. They got well. They, they, the angina stopped. The blood pressure came down. The diabetes was cured when it's type 2 diabetes. The autoimmune diseases went away. All this was published. It was published between... Well, even before 1880, but certainly between 1920 and 1980. In 1980, uh, what happened is we had cable news network, and we had uh, you know the peak of uh, harnessing fossil fuels and technology and transportation, and uh, industry took over. Uh, you know, they just took over. They took over science. They took over research. And so after 1980, you really can't trust things that have been published unless you you discover the biases of the researchers, which I'm very careful to do. But, uh, you know, that it's just money. It's just money, Rip. That's all it is. Don't take it personal. It's not a conspiracy. It's just making money. Yeah, yeah. All right, so, so you dove in to the Hawaii Library uh, and saw this research that supported what you were kind of maybe – thinking and maybe allowed you to connect all the dots. And then was it there that you discovered Nathaniel Pritikin and Dennis Burkett and Walter Kempner and all these guys? Absolutely. That's, that's where I discovered them. I actually discovered them in various ways. Somebody gave me a set of tapes from Nathan Pritikin. And, and by that time, I'd pretty much figured all this out. I, I just said, how could I see this and nobody else does? You know, there's got to be something wrong with me. And I spent, you know, a good time in the library, a tremendous, that's where I spent all my entertainment time. <laughs> and then Nathan Pritikin came to me in a, a set of audio tapes and, oh, I, I was in tears. Uh, you know, I, I said, you know, somebody else sees this this way too. And so that was a big deal. And Dennis Burkett, he, he, I got to know him pretty well. I had him on my television show and 
In fact, the only the only two interviews that exist, video interviews that exist of Nathan Pritikin and Dennis Burkett, I did, uh, and they're on my website. And you you referenced them, so I know you've seen them. And uh, <clears throat> they were a big influence on me. Uh, I have to say, Nathan Pritikin probably taught me as much about how to care for patients as anybody, except for Walter Kepner. Walter Kepner was a medical doctor at Duke University. Uh, he developed the rice diet. He taught me. He taught me just on how how simple a diet could be and provide adequate nutrition, and also provide powerful healing. Walter Kempner's rice diet. Walter Kempner, first of all, you have to understand, was one of the most famous researchers in the world. Walter Kempner supported Duke University for two decades financially. His work did. Was this the forties and fifties? Yes, uh huh. And he, they were they were the Kempner program was there for seven decades. Wow. Walter Kempner, um, he taught me not only could a simple diet of rice. Listen now, listen to this: rice and it was white rice, fruit fruit juice, and table sugar. That's how he fed the patients. He gave them a little vitamin pill, but that's it. How such a simple diet could could not only support good health, you know, you could live. I mean, my initial thought would be you, you'd suffer from malnutrition, some kind of deficiency diseases, and that wasn't the case. Wasn't he specifically, John, with with that, you know, the white rice, the fruit, the fruit juice, and the white sugar, wasn't he intentionally trying to get his patients uh, level of protein down to about 5% or less 5% or less. Right. Protein is evil. And if I had to pick one thing that has done most harm to people was the, it would be the nutrient protein. And the one thing that's done the most harm to our environment is the idea of protein as an important nutrient. There's no such thing as protein deficiency. It's never been reported. It doesn't exist. And yet, uh, almost the entire food industry is focused on selling you protein. Why? Because that's where you make the money. Mm-hmm. And the other thing they try and sell you is calcium. Yeah, his diet was uh, was about uh, 3 4% protein. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was 93% sugar. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and why, was, why was his protein that low? Was it because his patients had... What, what did his patients have that he was it some sort of kidney failure or? Yeah, he took care of a lot of kidney failure patients, but protein is hard to process. Uh, you don't store protein. If protein was, were stored, we'd all look like Arnold Schwarzenegger used to look. So it's not stored in the muscles. You have to get rid of it and you have to process it process through the liver and the kidneys. And he took a lot of care of a lot of kidney patients. Uh, Rodekin was also big on salt, and that was another real serious focus. He used to wash his white rice just to get the extra sodium off the rice. And so it was a very, very low protein, very low sodium diet. And with that kind of restriction, he took people with malignant hypertension. I mean, they're dying with high blood pressure, and he would cure 60% of them. People with terrible heart failure, they're, they're, you look at their chest x-rays, and they're heart was be as big as their chest cavity. Uh, he showed, he was the first one to show you could reverse heart disease long before uh, your dad and long before uh, Ornish ever showed you could reverse heart disease. He did it by showing serial EKGs where uh, the classic sign of ischemia due to blockages of the heart arteries is called ST depression on an EKG. And he showed in his patients who had angina 
who in other words had heart disease. They didn't have the modern technology like the angiograms and, and heart scans and so on to evaluate it. He'd take a simple EKG, he'd show ST depressions, put them on the rice diet. A few months later, the ST segments would be upright, which means the ischemia went away. He showed that at the end of the 40s. Yeah, so, you know, it, it was, it, again, he, he, was the, he was the pioneer. And of all the doctors that had an influence on me that he was, and yeah. you know, as far as a broad spectrum of practice, it was Nathan Pritikin. You know, can you also, because I know in, in reading a lot of your newsletters, another gentleman that you hold in the highest regard and was very influential was Henry Heimlich. Oh, yeah, I, I knew Henry. Henry wasn't very much interested in diet until he got sick. Uh, I'm not going to mention what he was ill with, but one of the greatest uh, gr greatest uh, uh, things that I s hold up as pride was the fact that when Henry Heimlich, the man who sa saved more lives than any other person in the world with the Heimlich chest tube, tube and the Heimlich maneuver, when he got ill, he came to my clinic to get well. And I believe he was in his early 70s. He lived to be in his early 90s with his condition. And uh, it's because he changed his diet. But yeah, I, I got to know Henry Heimlich. A couple of things that he taught me. He said, uh, he said, John, you're, you're never, they're never going to give you a platform. You're going to have to run around them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of woke up and said, at that point, I stopped trying to be friendly. I stopped trying to be politically correct. I just started running around my colleagues. And the other thing he taught me is he says, if, if you're, if the people around you understand what you're, you're, what you're saying, you're probably not being inventive enough. <laughs> and to this day, you know, even though what I teach is really simple, most people don't understand what I'm saying. Well, you know, and my father won the Benjamin Spock Compassion and Medicine Award, I think it was in 2000 and 2005. And Henry Heimlich was one of the ones that presented it to my father. Oh, wow. and, he, and, he, and he basically said, that, you know, when you're challenging the system, as you are always doing, John, as my father also did, you, uh, you're going to have all kinds of arrows in your back. Everybody's, you know, coming after you. Yeah. And he said, but that's a good thing because you know you're doing it right. Uh, uh, ne never, never seemed to bother me. Uh, <laughs> no. So I, I actually, actually I, I, I live in a world rip where I think people like me. <laughs> that's how that's how off base i am i actually think i, I actually I, I just don't feel my enemies I, yeah well you like to say that your parents taught you to tell the truth always and uh and that your life is guided by your passions and that certainly is is true with you um let me ask you this john uh so you have a a huge new passion for diet and climate and, and, and how the two are so interrelated. And on your website, uh, mcdougallfoundation.org, you, you basically list four deadly dietary um, deceptions that are out there. You touched briefly on protein, but do you want to say right. anything more about protein? And then I'd love for you to talk about the other yeah, three. Sure. Well, uh, Protein, as I mentioned, there's never been a case of dietary protein deficiency. It doesn't exist. Any, none of your friends have it, nor do they have amino acid deficiency. You've never seen it. It doesn't exist. It's impossible. The, the need for protein for the human being is so low 
that you can't uh, you can't possibly not meet it except by some synthetic diet. Uh, the other deception is uh, calcium. And uh, there, again, you start out with the fact that there's never there's never been a case of calcium deficiency ever described on any natural diet. And people immediately think about osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is actually due to an excess of protein. Mm. And what happens is, it's a kind of a long story, but briefly, when you eat too much protein, it breaks down to amino acids. And that means your system becomes acidic and your bones dissolve to neutralize the acid. And that's how you get osteoporosis. So there's two of the dietary deceptions. So tell me this with calcium. So you're saying that you're saying that we can get all the calcium that we need for strong, healthy bones from the plants? Well, you can't miss. I mean, yeah. if, if elephants can do it and hippopotamuses can do it, giraffes can do it, or and, and, and Asians can do it, and, and Aztecs and Mayans can do it, I think we can do it. You can't, you, calcium comes from the ground, and our need is so, so low, it, there's never been a case of insufficiency on any natural diet. It just does not exist. But a whole industry is built on this lie. It's, it's called unique positioning. It's part of uh, public relations for anybody in business. You find something unique about your product, and then you advertise it to, the, to death. And in this case, it's, it's to the death of your patients, of people on the planet. Yeah. You know, yeah. when they convince people, you know, you convince you have to have a lot of protein, a lot of dairy. You're convincing people to eat animal foods, saturated fats, uh, cholesterol, lack of fiber, vitamin mineral misbalances, and highly environmentally contaminated food, you know, full of carcinogens. And, you know, you're convinced it's not just the fact that it's a deficiency problem. It's the most toxic thing that you can eat. That's why I call it food poisoning. Yeah. But so tell me this then. So if we live, we live in a country where most Americans are probably consuming three to five servings of dairy products a day that are loaded with calcium. So how is it that we somehow have a, a, a so-called deficiency? Is it because the protein is trumping the calcium that's in those products? Right, it's because it, the, it, well, they focus on osteoporosis. Uh -huh. You know, the, the, bones, the bones have a lot of calcium in them. The bones store minerals. And um, that's where the connection comes in is, you know, they're there's calcium in the bones, well, there's calcium in dairy. So obviously you got to eat dairy. You know, it's like you should eat brains to be smart. Right, right. Or test or test or testicles to have a good oh. sex life, you know. It makes or eat muscle, eat, 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 eat meat to grow muscle. It's just pretty stupid. Anyway, the uh, uh, you know, that's that's the kind of nonsense people have it mixed up. They think because the dairy industry has taught us that, that plain and simple. They've taught us that it's a calcium deficiency when, I guess I should go into it a little more detail. When you eat uh, animal foods, they're sold and they truly are high in protein. Uh, protein breaks down into amino acids. There are 20, 20 different amino acids that, uh, that create all the different proteins in nature. And so you break down into amino acids. These are acids. And there's a kind of amino acid in animal foods that's prevalent. And these are sulfur-containing amino acids. They are methionine and cysteine. And they break down into sulfuric acid, a very powerful acid. So you dump all this acid in the system, 
the body may, must maintain a pH of 7.4. You die if you don't maintain that pH. So you're dumping all this acid meal after meal into your system. The primary buffering system of the body is the bones. Every medical student's taught that. Every dietitian's taught that. And so the bones have to dissolve and they release alkaline material. And in the process of dissolving, they also release uh, calcium and other minerals that end up in the urine. Mm. And, and, and that, that whole process leads to little bones in the kidneys, which are called calcium kidney stones. Ah. That's how you get calcium kidney stones. And uh, all this is, I mean, the science is absolutely solid. But, you know, the dairy industry, they hire their spend doctors and they pay good wages and they, they get them to lie. And so the public is confused. You know, who are you supposed to listen to? Uh, Rip Esselstyn and John McDougall or, or the people that can buy uh, uh, multi-million dollar Super Bowl ads? You know, <laughs> who wins out? They got the money. Let's Okay, let's move on. I appreciate you doing a little bit more of a deep dive on, on calcium so we can really understand what's going on there. So you're, you're the third um, deadly dietary deception that you have uh, on your website is omega-3 fatty acids. Right, right. Well, omega see, when you think of uh, omega-3 fats, uh, it comes mm -hmm. to mind as fish. Just like you think of calcium, you come to mind as dairy or, or protein comes to mind as meat. You know, that's, that's the connection. That's the unique position. So uh, you think, well, I got to eat more fish. Well, okay. But fish never made an omega-3 fat. No, no animal can desaturate at the carbon-3 position. It's all something only plants can do. So how did the fish get the, uh, the omega-3 fats? Well, they ate seaweed. They ate algae. That's how they got it. And the seaweed and algae made the omega-3 fats. So my, my plea is for you to go to the original source, the plants. There's no such thing as a fatty acid deficiency. It doesn't exist, except in any really bizarre laboratory-created diets. That's it. Uh, in other words, they're selling you something that's not, not a problem. And what they're selling you is fish. A couple of problems here. One is the fish are almost gone, Rip. You know, when I, when I was a young boy, and I love the ocean, I'm a windsurfer, a sailor, a scuba diver, and, you know, I just love, uh, that's been my life. When I was a little boy, uh, compared to now, 90% of the fish are gone. And, you know, that strikes me very hard. Uh, as far as people who eat fish go, you suffer terribly too. Uh, fish are highly contaminated with, for example, methylmercury. I can tell how much fish you eat by biopsying your fat and uh, looking at the methylmercury content of your body fat. This is a poison. Methylmercury is a poison. You know, it, it, anyway, the, you get all kinds of uh, carcinogens that, and environmental contaminants that hurt the brain, cause Parkinson's disease, uh, degeneration of the, of the brain. They uh, also are the initiators and, and promoters of cancer, these chemicals are. And they get, of course, they get in the food chain. And as you move up the food chain, uh, biomagnification occurs and you concentrate these chemicals so, so that when you eat on the top of the food chain, which is the dairy and the meat, or worse yet, if you're a baby sucking off mother's breast, that's the very top of the food chain. Then you get poisoned. It's just, you know, it's serious. You know, they, they declared, they declared uh, in, uh, in some research done by the Environmental Protection Agency in the 1970s, they analyzed the breast milk of uh, 
1,400 women in 48 states for environmental contaminants, and they consider milk a health hazard. In uh, Alaska, the, the women in Alaska who, who uh, breastfeed their babies, their, their breast milk is considered so toxic. You know, they're very heavy fish and animal product eaters, the people living up in the Inuit Eskimo. It's considered so toxic that it should be buried in a toxic waste dump. You know, it, it would just, it, it, I, from every point of view you look at it, from your food bill, if you're concerned about animal rights, if you're concerned about the planet, you know, if you've got heart disease, if you've got colon cancer, if you've got diabetes, you've got rheumatoid arthritis, if you're a religious person and you believe in your Bible, you know, it all says that you should not be doing what you're doing to the temple. Yeah. T tell me this. So then uh, as far as the omega-3 fats, then the, w in your opinion, what's the best place to get your omega-3s if you're not getting it from fish? Anything. You can't miss. <laughs> you see, once, once you supply the needs, then any extra is superfluous. You can't push the system further by, say, eating more protein, more vitamins, more essential fats. You know, it's like your car requires 12 spark plugs. <laughs> you yeah. put 18 under the hood and it doesn't run any better. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, lettuce, rice, right. even potatoes, right. which are very, very, they're only 1% fat. Yeah. Fatty acid deficiency does not occur on any natural diet. Uh, but, and, I, and I know people, you know, people a lot of people teach otherwise. And once they understand the, the poison problem with fish and what it's, you know, doing to the environment, mm -hmm. all this fish eating, then they start looking for plant sources of omega-3s. And they teach people to eat, uh, they eat lots of flaxseed oil and things like that. This is not a good idea. Yeah. Uh, flaxseed, maybe so. You know, mm -hmm. as long as you don't grind it up and extract the oil out of it, you probably do okay. Yeah, yeah. But the oil, is, the oil promotes cancer and it promotes, uh, yeah. it depresses the immune system. Well, let me ask you this before we move on to the fourth deadly, you know, dietary deception, which yeah. you say, which you say is starch, which I, yeah. you know, I obviously we want to talk about that because you are, you are Mr. Starch. Um, right. Dr. So, Potato. <laughs> that's right. Dr. Potato. So um, what's your stance when it comes to is there such a thing as a healthy fat? I mean, you know, because you, you, you have all these keto and paleo people saying, but the brain is 60% fat. You need fat for the brain and yeah. to be healthy. What's your, what's your comeback? Well, you know, what they, what they do is they tell you you have to have these omega-3 fats. And what they have to do is explain why terrestrial-bound people, in other words, the, those that don't have access to an ocean, yeah. how do they ever survived because you know they didn't have that concentrated fish fat uh, the the need for the need for essential fats is small it's supplied by rice potatoes beans corn so and, and again once you get enough that's enough um, you know people should go so far as to say things like you'll get alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. unless you unless you buy my omega-3 supplement that i happen to sell here on my website you know, they say that. Uh, that's complete nonsense. And uh, actually, I, you know, I've uh, you know, I pulled up the studies on it, and uh, they show clearly that 
omega-3 fats will not prevent Alzheimer's disease. And you know, even even though if you in a securitous way you go through a whole bunch of explanations, the bottom line is this is nonsense. But let's, let's scared people. Yeah. But they, they get scared. But I want to move beyond omega-3s just to fat in general, because you you love to say the fat you eat is the fat you wear, right? right. I, mean, I mean, I even heard uh, Jay Leno say that, you know, yeah, yeah. 20, 25 years ago on The Tonight yeah. Show. But yeah. but so is there such a thing as a healthy fat? Are you a fan of, I mean... Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah you, fat from rice. Yeah. Fat from oranges. So... Yeah, okay. they're, they're, you need essential fat. You, you'll... Essential fatty acid deficiency is a bad thing. The only time that I'm aware of that essential fatty acid deficiency has occurred mm-hmm. was when they started making baby formulas in the 1930s. Uh, what they did is they made them out of whole cow's milk. Uh, or And then what happened is the kids got o- overweight. And so to correct the problem of the kids becoming obese from making whole cow's milk formulas, they developed low-fat uh, formulas and they took all the fat out of the formula and they developed fatty acid deficiency in the children. Mm. But that's the only, the only situation I'm aware of in the scientific literature of fatty acid deficiency ever occurring. Right. And, 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 and most Americans are, they're overloading on really unhealthy fats, right? The saturated fats, the, the, the trans fats, you know, the omega sixes, all that stuff. In yeah, leaps and bounds. Um, so so let's move on to number four, which is starch. So you say starch is also a uh, a deadly dietary deception. How so? Well, it's been the opposite way. You know, the deception is that you need these things when it comes to calcium, omega three fats, and uh, protein. But it's the opposite uh, the opposite message in the sense that people teach starches are bad. Starches make you fat. You know, uh, I don't know what else do they say about starch. The, the starch, starch is vilified. And, and that's, that's the dietary deception is people don't understand the importance of starch in the human diet. Again, I can take you back two and a half million years to humanoids lived on plant-based diets. Every archaeologic study that is published over the last 20 years shows populations of people that live primarily on starches. I can take you back 105,000 years ago to Mozambique and show you that they ate grains. I I can show you that the Neanderthal 30 to 40,000 years ago was a starch eater, all the way from the cold North Sea to the steaming hot Mediterranean. If you look between the teeth of the Neanderthals, you find starch granules. So these mighty warriors that were not hunters um, to any degree. But, and again, let, let me be clear. It's not that they were vegans or vegetarians or didn't hunt. These people did. It's just the bulk of the calories came from starch. But let me explain to you why this has become a misunderstanding. It has to do with sexism, with gen- gender bias. It happens to be the way men treat women and always have. You see, the men, they went out uh, on the hunt spent a couple of weeks looking for some type of animal to kill, and maybe got lucky. And maybe they were fortunate enough to get that animal part back to the village before it rotted. But the people who were providing the calories for the village, they were their grandparents, the women, the children, 
they didn't get the glory. So when you talk about hunter-gatherers, the hunters, the men got the glory, not because they provided the calories. It's just that's what men do. That, that's the way we guys act. So you're not going to change that. But it's, it's, it's a total myth. Uh, gathering the food, in other words, picking up various plant parts. And, and of course, a little later on, the people, and it wasn't just 10, 12,000 years ago, it was 100,000 years ago. Uh, the agriculture was developed in various societies. You know, people get the idea that this is a, uh, a relatively modern change. It occurred gradually over at least 100,000 years. And, and of course, it was much accelerated 10 to 12,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it is, it, it is remarkable how it seems over the last probably 15, 20 years, starch has been so vilified, right? The breads, the pastas, the potatoes. Oh, my God, they're so fattening, blah, blah, blah. You, you, you like to refer to yourself. I mean, you are Dr. Potato and you and Mary have done some really, really wild experiments, right? Like eating only potatoes for 30 days, correct? Uh, well, you know, we've only done that for two weeks, but okay, there are people who've, uh, who've done it for, uh, there, the, there's a, uh, the head of the Washington potato commission, uh, whose name escapes me right now, but he went on all potato diet for 60 days. Yeah. And then there's the gentleman from uh, Australia, from Australia, Spudfit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He lived for over a year on potatoes alone, but there are also experiments from, for example, 1928. Uh, Dr. Kahn did an experiment. You can look this up, by the way. When we're done talking, you can go go to your uh, internet browser and look up Kahn, K-O-N, mm -hmm. an all potato diet, and it's a free document. And you'll see how he took a man and a woman. And, uh, and housed them so he had total control of their food. And for six months, he fed them an all-potato diet. Now, this man and woman, they were special in the sense that they were what is equivalent to marathon runners. Hmm. They're very athletic. And uh, they made a couple of statements. One is they did not tire of the all-potato diet. That's pretty important. I, I think I could live on just potatoes alone. <laughs> they're so satisfying. They're so enjoyable. We have we have uh, we have probably we have probably potatoes four times a week. Uh, maybe we have sweet potatoes a couple times and white potatoes a couple times. Mary buys the little uh, the little ones and uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what she calls them. And then she buys the big ones and and uh, you can tell my kitchen skills are not up to what they should be. That's why I got lucky fifty years ago. Yes, you and did. found somebody that complimented my deficiencies. <laughs> do you do you ever do you ever cook, or does Mary do like most no. of the cooking? No, I do breakfast every morning. Oh, you do. And what does that usually look like? It's probably not potatoes. Is it oatmeal? What is it? It's always oatmeal. Yeah, it's oatmeal and fruit. And one of the things I've discovered recently is that the fruit, uh, it, the fruit that you buy fresh spoils, and we get flies, and it's you know you have to throw a good share of it out. And so what I've been doing lately, and what I say lately, the last few years, is I go to the frozen food section. I buy frozen fruits and uh, heat them up in the microwave and uh, cook the, uh, the oatmeal. And every morning, without exception, except when we have the grandkids over, they, they like to have uh, hash brown potatoes and you know, a, few, a few different pancakes and waffles. And so we fix them. But otherwise, every morning, seven days a week, uh, I cook breakfast. And it's the same. It's uh, but 
I never tire of it. Is it the old, old-fashioned oats or is it steel-cut oats? Do you know? Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't make any difference, but it's, <laughs> we have to have the old, old-fashioned kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oats yeah. are oats, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to go back to what we were talking about because uh, I interrupted you. Uh, you were talking about those two kind of marathon runners that Khan yes. was, uh, you know, doing that experiment with for 60 days. They ate just potatoes. Right. Yeah, yeah they, they did. And again, you can look it up, Khan, all potato diet. It'll, it'll pull up right away for you. Yes, they did. And uh, they were in excellent health. They, they declared them in excellent health. When they said uh, solely and practically all of the protein came from potatoes. <laughs> yeah. That's the statement they make. And they did not tire of the all potato diet. What can you tell me? What what are some of the attributes uh, of the potato that you're so enamored with? Well, they provide carbohydrate. Uh, I've been I've, I've just put together a talk. Uh, I don't know how I'll release it on aging. Ooh. And yeah, it, it's it, it's of course because of my age. I'm interested in aging. Yeah. And uh, you know, you go through the. Um, the animal experiments, which range all the way from from flies to uh, to rhesus monkeys, but particularly the mice and rat studies. I know a lot of people, they object to what I have to say, talking about animal studies, but they provide some pretty crucial information. And what they find is that the animals live longest and they have the best brain health. I mean, they run maze experiments, you know, where they put mice through, uh, mites and rats through mazes. And they have the best brain health on a diet that is one to 10 protein to carbohydrate. Hmm. Okay. One to 10. And, and so uh, the diet we recommend and you recommend is one to 10 protein to carbohydrate. And uh, in other words, it's about 8% protein and about 85% carbohydrate. You do the math, it's one to 10. And so, and then, and then you do, uh, and then you do the experiments have been done on people, not, not very many, but you have, for example, the blue zones, I'm sure you're familiar with Dan Buettner's work. Yeah. And, uh, you're probably familiar with the biosphere two, hmm. which is where in Tucson, Arizona for two years, they lived uh, in an isolated, confined environment and they grew all their own food. They were basically vegans. A little, little goat milk and I don't know, tiny bit of animal food. But their diet, likewise, was uh, was uh, a diet that prolonged life. It was essentially very low protein, high carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And then there's there's a new experiment that just came out, uh, which I've, I've worked on. And I'll talk about in um, you know when I get when I give the lecture. It it, it looked at uh, at brain atrophy. Uh, what they looked at is the hypothalamus. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you age, your hypothalamus uh, atrophies. And so does, you know, you have a general mental, mental decline as you get older. I hope it doesn't show. But, but anyways, what they can do is they can measure by doing uh, CAT scans. They, they can measure the size of the hypothalamus and also the lateral ventricles, which lie right next to the hypothalamus. And that way you can, you can show atrophy of the hypothalamus. And they did this experiment that lasted 18 months on people. Mm -hmm. And they fed them various diets. And uh, they fed them the, the standard diet, the American diet. And then they fed them the Mediterranean diet, which is a diet high in fruits and vegetables. Then they exaggerated the Mediterranean diet. 
and they made it more in the direction that you and I recommend. And they added some uh, polyphenols in the form of tea and you know extra, extra supplements. And what they showed was on a diet that the more you increase the carbohydrate and lower the protein, the less atrophy you had of the hypothalamus. Wow. So anyway, the uh, it's, it's a rather interesting experiment. And I've just been putting this in a, in a new lecture that I'm doing. Uh, but what it turns out is that if you look at the animal experiments and the human experiments and you want to age gracefully and you want to live as long as possible and you want to keep as much of your intellectual function as possible. And that's what the research I've been doing uh, is on lately is uh, how to, again, because I'm at that phase of, of life where you want to avoid death and disability. Yeah. And um, you know, well, that's like your dad. Yeah, well, that's exciting, and uh, I, I can't wait to hear that lecture. Yeah, well, but it'll be out. It'll be out sometime this week. I think I'll have it out. Oh, fantastic! Um, so we were talking about potatoes and yes. all the attributes that were wonderful about about the potato. Um, and so you, you, would you say you have some form of potatoes every single day? Does Mary kind of cook something most, up? Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. Our, our meal is very simple, just like yours is and everybody else's is. People are very monotonous in their eating. They mm -hmm. have the same thing for lunch and breakfast and dinner pretty much every day. And they go to a restaurant, they order the same thing off the menu of that restaurant every time they go. There are a few people who like to have a, high, a wide variety, but most of us are very monotonous. Mm -hmm. So our, our meals consist of oatmeal for breakfast Yep, every day. And then we go on to lunch and dinner. We have a lot of leftovers for lunch. So basically, we're talking about the same kind of meal. And for dinner, we'll have, uh, we'll have potatoes and uh, like, like sweet potatoes and broccoli is a pretty big deal in our home. And uh, we'll have, uh, uh, and all, it's all vegan, you know, regardless of what you may hear me say, our diet is very strictly vegan. And, uh, you know, we'll have various kinds of uh, low fat salad dressings or sauces over the top of the potatoes. Uh, Mary made pea pods the last time we had white potatoes. And then she makes rice dishes. And we, we occasionally have tofu uh, with our rice dishes just to kind of enrich them a little bit. Not that you ever have to eat a tofu. You never have to do that. But uh, it, it, it adds a little bit of um, richness to the meal. And so she makes a, a lot of what we call fried rice. We don't fry it. We use no oil at all. And she'll cook something up in a, in a wok and put various frozen vegetables. Again, we use a lot of frozen stuff because it's easy for us, Rip. It's, you know, we go to the grocery store maybe every 10 to 14 days. And um, it's really easy, you know, to, if you don't buy fresh stuff, if you have, a, you know, you fill up your freezer. And frozen food is in many ways better than fresh. Oh, I, you know, I yeah. Like we... I hear you loud and clear there. Our freezer is loaded to the brim with yeah. frozen fruits and frozen vegetables. Yeah. And last night, my 13-year-old daughter made the most amazing um, uh, stir-fry, rice stir-fry with frozen vegetables, a little bit of cashews in there, but she had peas, corn, uh, broccoli, cauliflower. It was incredible. Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. It's been 13 years. I think the last time we got together, she was just a little baby. She was. Actually, at the McDougal, when we went to Costa Rica oh, for yeah. that, for in 2010, she was one year old. 
Yeah. And now tell me, so how many children do you have? Is it Heather and Craig? Am I correct? Yeah, Heather and Craig and Patrick. Okay. Craig Craig is a a professor at Oregon Health and Science University, the medical school there. And Heather runs the business now. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And uh, my other son, Patrick, he's a very successful engineer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, he's works in the, in the chemistry and engineering business and very proud of my, of my children. And, and then we have, uh, we have seven grandchildren. Wow. Is it fair to say that, um, most McDougal's are plant-based like you? Oh, uh, unquestionably. Uh-huh. Unquestionably. I, you know, I, we're here living in, uh, in the Northwest, my granddaughter, she, anything that even sounds like an animal, she won't come close to and and she's now 10 years old. So yeah, all, all the, I can't say that they're you know, any, anywhere, any more that I'd want to claim that I was 100% pure vegan and never touched leather. You know, I, the, the, our family, if, if you walked into any of our homes, you'd find somewhere between 90 and 99% of, of what they eat is compliant with what we believe is best for them. They have their, they, you know, they have their birthday cakes and and, uh, and occasional treats, and they go out trick or treating on Halloween. And actually, actually, you know, one of the jokes in our family is that, you know, it is of of the seven grandkids, which one can find Babe Ruth bars for Grandpa? <laughs> is that your favorite? <laughs> that was my favorite in the past. I've, I, there are a lot yeah. of favorites I've had that I, uh, yeah, you know, I've decided aren't worth the trouble. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my dad's was Reese's peanut butter cups for a while. Yes, is that right? Oh yeah. Well, you um, know, perfection. Perfection is not what it has to be about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is, is people can't learn moderation, and you know, if they add, add a little bit to their to their life, uh, what happens is they fall off the wagon, and so that's why you have to teach an alcoholic that they can't drink at all, and a cigarette smoker, and a drug addict that you you just can't touch this stuff. And when it comes to food. It's the same thing. People who are very much involved in a destructive diet, you have to tell them, look, you just don't do that. Uh, you know, one, one, one birthday cake and it's down off every buffet line in town. They just never stop. So, you know, it, you have to teach, you have to teach uh, perfection, but in all practicality, the more you do, the better results you'll get. Except for the fact that you can't do just a little bit. <laughs> I know that. Yes. Let, let me, um, I, I have, I have so many questions that I want to ask you and we're going to run out of time today. So what I'd love to, what it, we can do it again. No, what I'd love to do is, is, is invite you back on the podcast. Cause I want to ask you all about screw your thoughts on screening supplements, alcohol, caffeine, all these things that you just have such a wonderful understanding of. And, and I think we need another, another hour, but as we as we wrap this up, I want to ask you two questions. And the first is, you know, there's two basic beliefs that most people hold that I think you would say are not true. And the first is, as we age, we naturally become fatter and sicker. That 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 is a complete falsehood. Correct? As we age, we become fatter and sicker. But most people think that's the case. I learned that from my plantation patients back between 1973 and 1976 when I was a sugar plantation doctor. Yeah. My, my first generation patients, they lived into their 80s and 90s and worked into their 80s and 90s. They were always trimmed. They, 
they never had any of the problems that I was treating. And as, and as I mentioned, my older Filipino males, they would retire from the plantation. They'd go back down to the Philippines. They'd buy a young 20-year-old bride. Mm. And they'd bring her back, and they'd start a family. And I was impressed. <laughs> you know, I thought, wow, that's the way to spend your 70s and 80s, not in a, not in a convalescent home. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they're absolutely untrue. Yeah. So it's the food. It's the food. It's the food. It's the it's, food. It's, it's the food. Yeah. Yeah. And you have it. Don't you have a trademark on it's the food? Well, yes, we do. Uh, <laughs> we started using that about 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it regardless, was. it's a pretty, pretty common. It is. It's brilliant. And the second thing it, that everybody kind of, most people believe is that a well-balanced diet is best. And, and, and what are your thoughts on that? Obviously. Well, it, it depends on your perspective of what a well-balanced diet is. If you happen to learn how to eat from the from the food industry, the U.S. food industry, then you have to have, of course, plenty of protein, plenty of calcium. Mm-hmm. If you were raised, for example, in China or Japan, uh, you would be taught something completely different. And it's just like when people migrate from uh, countries where they ate starch-based diets, like, for example... Uh, the Latinos who migrate here from rural areas where they still live on corn and beans and squash. Uh, there's a, somewhat of an adjustment to eating at McDonald's. And the same thing with people who come from Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, they still stick with their rice dishes. And and the idea that uh, it, it's, it's all a perspective of what your environment is teaching. And our environment is built around capitalism which I'm not trying to say anything negative about. It's just the fact that the more you do, the more money you make, you know, the more successful you consider yourself. And uh, the result has been that we have, uh, well, I don't know whether we still have the sickest country. There are a lot of people competing out there. There are. We have, yeah. we have a pretty sick country. Yeah. So well-balanced is, is again, it's from the perspective of who's making the rules. Yeah. So, John, um as we wrap this up, I want to ask you one last question, and that is, you know, you and I were, were at that summit that uh, James Cameron held in 2013 in San, Santa Barbara. And back in 2013, I mean, this was something that he really wanted us to try and have this kind of brain, brain trust and try and figure out how can we get this message out to as many of the developed nations as possible. Here we are. It's almost ten years later. Um, it seems like everywhere I turn, uh, you know, there's forest fires. It's getting hotter. You know, climate change is it is it is it is here and it is upon us. Um, your house burned down in Santa Rosa, right? You you yeah, we experienced lost everything. Yep, you experienced it firsthand. So, my question to you is: Are you optimistic that we're going to be able to? survive this? Well, I, I am. I wasn't up until recently because of people's inertia as far as cutting back on fossil fuel use. It's obvious people won't do it or haven't done it to any extent that they should have. And uh, the reluctance to change the diet because the research, the scientific research shows, and you can find that on the website, mcdougallfoundation.org, that you can cut your contribution of global warming gases by 80% overnight when you switch from the Western diet to, to the, uh, the kind of diet that we recommend. 
there are eight scientific papers. If you go to mcdougallfoundation.org, there, and there are no con conflicting papers that show you can reduce it by 50 to 87 percent, average 80 percent. Yeah, and and that and a lot of that is comes from uh, the work of Celeste Rao. Well, he's he's, he's done some of it, some of it, and he's a very important man. Yeah. But there are other researchers from around the world who have done similar studies. So when people uh, criticize uh, Salish Rao, then uh, that's that's fine. You know, I mean, I think he's done some phenomenal work, and I think he'll be one of the leaders in this movement to save the planet. But there are lots of other researchers from very respected research labs that have come up with the same or similar conclusions. And again, they're they're on my website. So you ask me, do I have hope? Uh, let me let me give you a, a final tip for your listeners and something I've recently discovered. I do have hope, and I want you to go to a website. It's uh, mir.org. M E E R. Mir.org is Dr. Yi Tao, and what his idea is is because we're not going to be able to solve solve the carbon problem. You know, there's just too much CO2 in the atmosphere. There's too many global warming gases in the atmosphere to ever reduce it. Carbon carbon capture is a joke. A very expensive, cruel joke. Even planting trees is not going to do it. I, I think the addition of a good diet, at least I believed up until recently, would would make the difference to save the planet. But but I've gotten to the point where, because of the reluctance of people to change, that I kind of hold out a lot of hope there. But if you go to meer.org, uh, you'll hear a discussion of how to control global warming and how to control the temperature on the planet, which is our only card left. And we can do that by reflecting sunlight using mirrors. Mm. Or you say it's crazy. Look at what doc, Dr. Tao has to say. And he's got it pretty much worked out. The question is, is well, we got on it as a planet. Will the 7 billion people on this planet decide that the, the ship is sinking and will do anything to keep afloat? And uh, I, I think that he's got it right. Uh, at least I'd like to see somebody take the effort to prove him wrong, that we can reflect enough sunlight away from the earth to cool the planet so your children, Rip, and my grandchildren will have a future. And right now, it looks pretty dismal. Right. So you're saying it's, the answer is probably going to be mirrors and not plants. Well, it's going to be something besides yeah. just just carbon dioxide control, because we're so far past that. When we and I started talking about this, you know, 20 years ago, it was at a point where we could have done something. But, it, you know, uh, Al Gore tells us uh, since his publication in 2006 of An Inconvenient Truth, he tells us uh, if you compare the carbon that has been put in the atmosphere before his presentation and afterwards, we put in more carbon since 2006 than we ever did in the entire history of human existence. So they, they just want the people just won't stop. Industry won't stop. The elite, the rich, the bankers, the, they just won't stop. Even though I have to believe they have children and grandchildren too. I don't understand why they won't do something more. Anyway, uh, I, I believe we're past that point. Not that we we don't have to do it. You really need to get off the fossil fuel. You really need to change to a vegan diet. You know, this is absolutely crucial to do for the, hopefully we'll, we'll be in existence for more than 
100 years or 500 years or 1,000 years, but the immediate concern will be to lower the temperature on the planet. And uh, meer.org. Yeah, you want to you want to hear? I have nothing to do with these people at all. I just uh, just yeah. the day I found out about them is the day I had a bigger smile on my face than I had a long time. <laughs> good, 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 good. Uh, John, I, I want you to come back. I want to have uh, another not, another great talk with you. Again, I want you to know, John. Again, what a giant you've been in in my life, uh, in so many people. So many people ad- admire you and Mary and just allowing us to literally stand on your shoulders, on your head, on every part of your body as we have done our best to, to spread this, this message that you have been standing, standing behind since the late 1970s. Um, it's just remarkable. I want you to know how much I love you. I love um, your, your passion, the way you've always challenged the system, the way you have led with the truth, and you're, you're unwavering. You are absolutely unwavering, and, and I love that about you. And um, the world is a better place because of John and Mary McDougall, so thank you so much. Well, thank you, Rip. We've got an army to build. You know, it's going to take, take a lot of us. And so, you know, the fact that you've got a, a following that's dedicated and understands the truth and they're trying to spread the word too, whatever your talents are, I just want to say something to your viewers, whatever your talent is, use that to spread the word uh, because we have to do it. The stakes are so high, not just, not just for your own health, for everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you have, you have something on, I think it's McDougallFoundation.org where, you know, the stakes have never been higher and we're talking about, you know, planet earth here. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, just the whole, just our just, home. Yeah, just our home, exactly. John, hit me with a fist bump, all right? Hit me with a fist bump. All right. Uh, Plant right. strong, go. John. Plan strong. Thank you. Uh, there we go. I look forward to the time that we can personally share some some place together. Rep. You and your okay. family have been our best friends for many years. I look forward to having John back on the podcast to continue this important conversation. To learn more about John's work, visit drmcdougall.com or mcdougallfoundation.org. Remember, as Dr. John McDougall says, it's the food. It's always been the food. And as I like to say, keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.